You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Father in heaven, we sing praises to the one who who paid our debt. We sing praises to to you, Jesus, for the sacrifice that you made for our sins. And as we spend uh, today reflecting on what it cost for you, what it cost you to save us, Lord, I pray that we would do it with thankfulness in our heart, but also uh, just a genuine a sense of how serious our sin is and was that, if, that Jesus had to give himself. And I pray that as your word is open, that we would fully understand what it cost him and that it would create in us a deeper love and a deeper commitment to Jesus. I pray, Lord, for the person here who isn't trusting in Jesus. I pray they wouldn't leave today without trusting in him. I pray you would save them. And God, that we would be able to rejoice over them as they see the one on the cross dying for us. And so I pray for your help now as I seek to explain your word, Lord. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to to lead in power and that our hearts would be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can take a seat. And if you have a Bible... You can go to Luke chapter 23. And if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming up and down the aisle and they will give you a Bible. You just have to put your hand up and they'd love to give you one. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, you can keep that. So don't be, don't be shy. Uh, one of the problems that we have as uh, people is that we don't see ourselves as clearly as we think. We don't see ourselves as clearly as we think. Some people hear the crucifixion story and they think, if I was in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, I would have never done that. I would have never crucified Jesus. And because we don't see ourselves as clearly as we think, we need people to come alongside and to show us, to help us see the things that we don't see. It's like, a, like an MRI, like an MRI that reveals problems, health issues going on in our body. And the, and the way, and just like how an MRI reveals health issues going on, the cross of Jesus reveals the heart of people. It reveals our hearts. And Luke, in this passage, he's going to focus in on the people at the cross. He's going to focus in on them. And the way they respond to what is happening to Jesus reveals their hearts. It shows us and tells us the kind of people that they are. And so Luke 23, verse 32, we're going to jump right in. And so you can write this down. The cross reveals, point number one, the, the opportunist. The cross reveals the opportunist. Verse 32, it says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there, uh, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his 
garments. And so Luke tells us that Jesus is led away with criminals to be crucified. And he says it happens at the place called the skull. Now, the reason why it's called the place of the skull is because the, the mountain, the, the hill that he was crucified on just looked like a skull. That's why it's called that. And crucifixion was the, the Roman Empire's version of the electric chair. And this is the most uh, humiliating and the most excruciating way uh, to kill a someone. It's not the place it's not the place that we're expecting a king to win a great battle. This is a place of judgment for wicked and evil men. It's not a place where we would expect a king to win a battle. And Luke gives us this detail that Jesus was crucified with the criminals because it confirms Isaiah's prophecy about Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse 12 says, He poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. And Mark 15 verse 27 tells us that these guys were thieves. They were thieves. They were, they were robbers. They were, they were guys who stole things from people by using force. Jesus here is being counted as a criminal. But here's the thing. Jesus was not a criminal. He's being counted as a criminal, but he's not a criminal. Multiple times in this chapter, people declare Jesus' innocence. Multiple times. In verse 4 and, and verse 14 and verse 22, Pilate declares that Jesus is innocent. In verse 15, Herod, he declares that Jesus is innocent. He says he's done nothing, nothing deserving of death as he sends him back to Pilate, in verse 47, the centurion says that Jesus is innocent. But even though Jesus is innocent, he's being put to death here. It says he's crucified. The sinless, innocent one, dying with and for sinners. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous the righteous, innocent Jesus for the unrighteous, you and I. Even though Jesus is innocent, he is put to death for our sins. Now Luke doesn't dwell on how horrific a crucifixion was, but death by crucifixion was slow and painful. Now Jesus was nailed to a rough piece of wood with heavy spikes through his hands and feet, and then he hung there hung there until he died. Now, this was another a fulfillment of uh, another prophecy. Psalm 22, uh, verse 16 says, uh, they, uh, they, they have pierced my hands and my feet. But notice here what Jesus, what Jesus does. He prays for them. He prays for them as they're nailing him to the cross. Verse uh, 34 says, And Jesus says, uh, Father... Forgive them, for they know not what they do. He, he prays for them. Jesus speaks to his Father. He speaks to his Father in heaven, and he says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. J.C. Ryle said, as soon as the blood of the great high priest, of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. As soon as they... They were driving those nails, and Jesus begins to intercede. And later we're going to see that the, the Savior begins to save. And so he prays 
uh, for them. Uh, Jesus here is practicing. He's modeling. He's modeling for his disciples what he taught them in Luke uh, chapter 6. In Luke 6, 27 uh, to 28, he tells them to love their enemies and to pray for those who abuse them. See, Jesus here is practicing what he preached. And if we are going to be followers of Jesus, if we're going to live for Jesus and be like Jesus, then we have to be people who practice the things that we preach. We have to do the things that are coming out of our mouth. We have to be people who practice what we preach. Jesus prays for them, but notice what they're doing. It says that they, they cast lots to divide his garment. And this also fulfills a Psalm 22, verse 18, another prophecy which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And the soldiers here decide to throw dice for Jesus' clothing. They, they have a, a winner-take-all game for his uh, clothing. This means here that Jesus was either naked or simply wearing a loincloth. And you might be thinking here, why do they want his clothes? Why would they cast lots for his clothing? Well, Luke 23 verse 11 tells us that the clothing that Jesus was wearing was splendid. It was splendid clothing. See, when, when Herod was mocking Jesus, they, they put beautiful clothes onto him before they sent him back to Pilate. And so what these soldiers see here is an opportunity for gain. It's an opportunity for gain. The, the, the Savior of the world is dying in front of them. Is dying in front of them. And all they're focused on is purple wool and silk. They're focused in on what they can get. It's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity for them to gain, possibly monetarily. And so they settle for something less. See, the soldiers here are a perfect example of our world. They're a perfect example of our world, which is full of people who are obsessed with gaining money and material things. And that's why a lie like the prosperity gospel speaks so much to people's hearts. That's why it speaks to so many people's hearts today. Because it makes the cross about stuff. They tell you that you come to Jesus. You know, you sow your little seed. And then you, you get all the things that you want. You come to Jesus for stuff. Jesus died to make you healthy, wealthy, and happy. That's a lie. Jesus dies for our sins. And that's why it speaks speaks deeply to the heart of the opportunist, the person who's only concerned with what they can get from Jesus. David Jones, in his really good book on the prosperity gospel, says this, the prosperity gospel distorts the true gospel in that it doesn't point people toward Christ, but rather focuses on the attainment of human desires. It doesn't point people to Jesus. It points them away from him. The prosperity gospel makes people play games at the cross. It makes it about what you can get from Jesus more than what Jesus experienced. It makes people think about what they can, what they can get. The cross reveals the opportunists, and it also reveals the opposition. The cross reveals the opportunists, but it also reveals the opposition. Verse 
35. It says, And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, uh, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up offering, offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. And so Luke, uh, Luke tells us that uh, there were some people who were just, they were just watching. Now, when you hear that, it almost sounds like they're just bystanders. That they're just like innocent bystanders uh, watching. But the word for watching comes from Psalm 22, verse 7. And it says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. See, these people aren't innocent bystanders. These are the people in verse 21 who are saying, crucify him crucify him. What they, what they are is they've shown up. They've shown up to make sure that their demands are carried out. They're not innocent bystanders. They're, they're there to see the thing happen that they've been asking for. And next Luke tells us that the, the rulers scoffed at him. This literally means to turn one's nose up. It's like that person who's into classical music, but they, they turn their nose up at rap music and anybody who likes rap music because they think it's beneath them. They think Jesus is beneath them. And so they mock his ability to save others and not save himself. He's dying now. And because he's dying, they give full vent to their anger. And it's not just the rulers who mock uh, Jesus. The soldiers do it also. And so the whole world is represented here. Jews and Gentiles mocking Jesus. It says the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. They gave Jesus the wine they thought he was worthy of. And the offer here is made as a joke. It's made as a joke because it comes with this challenge. Like, Save yourself. They don't believe that Jesus is a true king. See, they see no crown. They see no kingdom. All they see is him dying. And so they don't believe that he, uh, he can do what they're asking. In one of David's other psalms, uh, he said that this would also happen. Psalm 69, verse 21 says, For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Now you're might be thinking here, why is Luke referencing all of these psalms? Why is he doing this? Luke wants us to know and see that what's happening is fulfilling Scripture. He's showing us that the Scriptures that, what, that talked about what would happen to Jesus are being fulfilled here. What the Bible said would happen, happens. And so what we need to know and understand is that we can trust the Bible. There's lots of people who walk around and they tell you, you can't trust the Bible. It's full of lies. You can trust the Word of God. This is the only perfect book on earth. This is the only book that if you read it, it will change your life. It will change you. And so if you aren't reading the Bible, you need to read the Bible. It will change your life. There's not a single lie in the Word of God. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. Not some words. Every single word in the Bible proves true. And the Bible can change your life. And Luke wants us to see that what God says in his word, what God says will happen in his word, happens. And so we can trust 
the word of God. And there's amazing promises in God's word. And we need to, as believers, hold on to those promises. In our hardest moments, trust what God has said. Everything he says proves true. And we can trust his word to us. This is God being kind. Think about this. The God of the universe doesn't leave us down here, you know, having us wonder, what should we do? He tells us. He speaks to us. Every word of God proves true. We can trust his word. And notice that they're all asking uh, Jesus to save himself. The rulers say, let him save himself if he is the Christ. The soldiers say, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. They're all asking him to save himself. See, they want Jesus to come down off the cross to prove that he's the savior. But Jesus proves that he's the savior by staying on the cross. He proves that he's our savior, not by coming down, but by staying on the cross. See, Jesus here, Jesus is not interested in saving himself. Jesus is not interested in saving himself from death. Jesus is interested in saving us. Jesus came to die for us. That's why in Luke 19, verse 10, it says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Just put your name there. He came to seek and to save the lost Marvin, who instead of trusting God, was trusting in himself and was living a life full of sin. Jesus is not interested in saving himself. He wants to save you. He wants to save me. And that's why he stays on the cross. The inscription over Jesus' head says, this is the king of the Jews. But Jesus is the king of the Gentiles also because he dies for both Jew and Gentile. That's why John 12, verse 32, uh, Jesus says, When I am lifted up from the earth, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men, all men to myself. See, Jesus, Jesus is the king of the world. Jesus is the king of the world. But Jesus isn't like kings that we've seen, earthly kings who use and abuse their subjects. Jesus is a true king who serves his subjects by dying for them, by paying the ultimate price so that his subjects can go free. He's a king who serves. He serves us by dying on the cross for our sins. See, even though these watchers and mockers can't see it, Right before them, Jesus is proving that he is the savior of the world. And they missed it. They missed it. They couldn't see it. And because they couldn't see it, they opposed him. They mock him. They oppose him because they can't see Jesus. And lots of people miss out on Jesus. They miss it because they don't see that Jesus is the savior of the world. And God doesn't want that for anyone in this room. He wants us to look at the cross, to see what is happening to his son and see the one he promised to send, accomplishing what his father sent him to do. Dying as our savior. And so the cross reveals the uh, the opportunist, the cross reveals the opposition, and the cross reveals the unrepentant. 
The cross reveals the unrepentant. It says here, one of the, one of the criminals who hanged, verse 39, one of the criminals who hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, Jesus is not only mocked by the, the rulers and the soldiers, he's, now, he's also mocked by the criminal. He's mocked by the criminal. And Luke tells us that he railed at him. The, the word here in, in the Greek means to blaspheme. He railed at Jesus. This guy here is hanging next to the Savior of the world. He's hanging next to the Savior of the world. He has one last opportunity to believe and to trust. And he, he verbally abuses Jesus. He wastes his opportunity. He's right next to Jesus. And he wastes it. He railed at him, Luke tells us. Instead of believing and repenting of his sin, he makes selfish demands to Jesus. See, this guy here is about to die. He's about to die. Death is right upon him. And it's not enough for him to get serious about his relationship with God. It's not enough for him to fix his broken relationship with God. And lots of people live their lives saying, I'm going to get right with God in the end. I'm just going to do my own thing for a little while, but when I get, when I get there, when it's upon me, I'm just going to get right with God. This is a clear picture that that doesn't always happen. The time to get right with God is right now. Not at the end. This guy is using his dying breath to rail. To rail about how unfair he thinks he's being treated. He wants Jesus to save him on his own term, own terms. He just wanted him to get him off the cross. See, he's not interested. He's not interested in a relationship with Jesus. He's not interested in a relationship with Jesus. He just wants Jesus to help him. He just wants Jesus to help him get off the cross. He wants escape from immediate death. That's all he wants. See, there's no fear of God in him. There's no fear of God in his heart. Notice, he's not confessing any sin. He's not even asking for forgiveness. All he wants is some practical help. And lots of people treat Jesus like that. They come to Jesus that way. All they want is practical help in emergency situations. They don't want a relationship with Jesus. You know, things come up, circumstances come up in their life, and they say, they demand, God, fix this thing. Work this thing out for me. And then when that happens, what do they do? They go, they go off and live for themselves just like they were before. They don't want Jesus. They want practical help in emergency situations. They want to use Jesus. And that's all this guy wants. He just wants down off the cross. He's not looking for a relationship. He's not looking uh, to, to walk with Jesus into eternity. He just wants help, quick help, practical help in emergency situations. And people today, that's the same way they treat Jesus. They don't want Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They don't want to walk with Jesus. They just want him to fix some things. And it's wrong. He refuses to repent, just verbally attacks. He sarcastically asks Jesus to save him, but he doesn't believe Jesus had the power to do it. He doesn't believe that. But here's the thing. Jesus does have the power to save us. 
But we have to come to Jesus on his terms, not ours. We have to come to Jesus on his terms, confessing and repenting of our sins, believing truthfully that Jesus is the Savior of the world, believing that he can actually save us, and wanting, wanting a relationship with him. If not, Jesus will never receive us. See, we have to, we have to see the, the seriousness of our sin. We have to see the seriousness of our sin or we will never see the, how necessary the cross was. And it won't have the, the same meaning that it should have unless we, we see and feel deeply that, our, that, that sin is dangerous and destructive and that I've been sinning and I need him to save me. Or we won't, uh, we won't uh, come to him. We won't see the cross as necessary. And so Luke here shows us, he shows us a bunch of people who see the cross all wrong. They see the cross of Jesus all wrong, but he shows us. He's going to show us one guy who sees it right. He shows us now one guy who sees it right. This is point number four. The cross reveals the broken. The cross reveals the broken. Verse 40, but the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since, you're under the, since we're under the same a sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now Matthew 27 verse 44 tells us that both of the criminals railed at Jesus. It tells us that both of them rail at Jesus. But something happened to this guy. Something happened. He started out angry, but something moved him to a place of brokenness. He started just like the other guy, railing at Jesus. But something moved him to a place of brokenness. Now, maybe it was the patience that Jesus was showing. Maybe it was the patience of Jesus as he's being mocked and not saying anything, as they're, as they're joking at him and not him not responding. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was the prayer that he, he hears Jesus pray for those nailing him to the cross. Well, I don't know for sure what it was, but what is clear is that God had started to work in this guy's heart. And it opened his eyes. And it moves him from a place of railing to a, to a place of brokenness. He, he sees himself for who he really is. John Calvin said, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. All wisdom starts there. When I understand who God is, then I understand who I am. That, that, there's, that there's sin there. When I get that, I'm starting to get wise. Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start to go towards God for the help that I realize that I need. See, this guy, he sees, he realizes that he's a sinner. And so he, he rebukes the other guy. Now Luke tells us that. He says he rebukes him. He says, do, do you not fear God? 
Don't you fear God? And this guy actually teaches us something. The, the thief on the cross is standing up for Jesus. And think about how we, how we act sometimes. Somebody's talking about Jesus, using Jesus' name in vain, talking about God in a certain disrespectful way, and what are we doing? Cowering and not speaking up. When we need to say, hey, please, and we say it respectfully, but please do not speak about the God who has saved me like that. Do not use the name of Jesus in vain like that. We shouldn't be cowering away. We should boldly stop when people are disrespecting and dishonoring the Lord. And this, this thief on the cross, and his, he's dying and he's standing up for Jesus. And we need to learn and be willing to step in and stop people respectfully. Say, please don't speak about the Lord like that. Knowing uh, he's a sinner, he, he rebukes the, uh, this guy, and it leads him down the road of repentance. It leads him down the road of repentance, and it tells us some things about him. His repentance tells us some things about him. It tells us that he fears the Lord. He says to the other guy, don't you fear God? He can only say that if the fear of God was starting to work and sort of well up in him. He's like, don't you fear God? He has a fear of the Lord in his heart. He's also humble. He's humble. He, sa- he recognizes that he's being punished for his sin and that he deserves it. He says, we indeed justly, we're getting the reward for the things that we have done. There's humility in his life. He understands that the punishment he's getting, he deserves. Uh, he has a right understanding of Jesus. He has a right understanding of Jesus. He says, this man has done nothing wrong. And later on, you're going to see that he acknowledges Jesus' kingly status. He has a right understanding of who Jesus is. He says he has done nothing wrong. And he demonstrates great faith. He demonstrates great faith. See, and we're going to see that in a moment. See, lots of people think that the greatest lesson this story tells us is that you can be saved at the last moment. They think that that's the greatest thing it teaches. Now, that's true. That can happen. But that's not the greatest lesson this teaches. The greatest lesson this guy's teaching us is that we need to know and understand that when we come to God, the thing that we deserve is justice rather than mercy. That's what it's showing us. That the thing we deserve from God is justice and not mercy. And here's the thing, though. And this is really good. God loves us. And so he, he pours his wrath on his son so that he could give us mercy. So he could give mercy to us. He loves us. And so he sends his own son to the cross so that he would not have to pour his wrath out on anyone who is trusting in Jesus. We have to come knowing that we are getting mercy. We are getting the thing we do not deserve. And we see uh, him uh, getting mercy uh, here. Look at verse uh, 42. He finally makes his request. He makes his request to Jesus. He says, and he said to Jesus, Luke tells us, he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into uh, your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, 
you will be with me in a paradise. See, as a thief, as a thief, this guy spent his whole life grabbing things from people, stealing things from people. He spent his entire life doing that. He finally asks for something. He spent his entire life robbing people by force. And he finally, finally here, he asks for something. And he asks for the thing that he knows he does not deserve. And Jesus gives it to him. We're going to see that in a moment. This guy wants to be in the kingdom Jesus is going to rule. What's interesting here is that uh, this is the first time and the only time anyone in Luke's gospel calls Jesus by name. It's the only time anyone calls Jesus by name. But this makes perfect sense that he would use Jesus' name here. Because Jesus' name means God saves. It means God saves. Matthew 1 verse 21 says, A she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. He calls Jesus by name because he wants Jesus to save him. He wants him to save him. That's why he uses his name. This guy here shows us humble faith. He shows us humble faith while the other criminal shows us angry unbelief. See, it takes faith to believe that Jesus' death actually pays for our sins. It takes faith to believe that one day we will be resurrected and given eternal life. It takes faith to believe that Jesus is coming back one day to take us to be with him in his kingdom. It takes humble faith to believe all of those things. And all of them are true. And so this guy here shows us the humble faith we need to approach Jesus with, believing Believing that he will do everything, everything that he's promised to do. And because of his humble faith, he receives the grace and mercy he doesn't deserve. Because of his humble faith, he receives the grace and mercy he does not deserve. And Jesus says to him, truly, he says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He says, today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, not next year. He says, today, you will be with me in paradise. And that word paradise uh, is a very uh, important. See, Jesus promises to, to save this guy immediately. And he promises to take him back to the presence of God. That's why that word paradise is so uh, important. Revelation, in Revelation 2, verse 7, in 2, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, uh, 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 verses 2 to 4, the word paradise is used to refer to heaven. It's, re- it's used to refer to heaven, the dwelling place, the, the place of rest for Christians. But here's what's also interesting. The word paradise is the Persian word for garden. It's the Persian word for garden. What Jesus is telling this guy is, today, today, 
you will be with me in the garden. Today, I will take you back to the garden. Jesus is telling him, today, I will take you back to Eden. I will take you back to the place, our first home, the the place we're supposed to be. See, in Genesis chapter 3, we see man being sent out of the garden. Genesis 3, verses 23 to 24 says, The Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so what we see here is because of our sin, man is being sent out of the presence of God. And the door back into God's presence is shut. We are sent out and the door is shut, but the door is not shut forever. Because when Jesus dies on the cross, the door back into the presence of God is open. Jesus is the key that gets us into the gate of heaven. Jesus is the only one that can take us, that can walk us back to that place that we've been sent out of. And that's what he's telling this guy. I am taking you home. See, the the first Adam, he lost paradise. But the second Adam, the greater Adam, Jesus, he regains it for us. And so Jesus is the only one that can take us back to that place that we have lost. And he takes us back and we get to spend eternity with him. And here's the thing. Heaven, heaven is amazing. Heaven is amazing. But heaven is paradise. You know why? Because Jesus is there. Heaven is paradise because Jesus is there. He says, today you will be with me. Today, he says, you will be with me. Jesus promises this guy his presence for all eternity. That's what makes it paradise. You and I, when we're trusting in Christ, we will go to that place where we will spend eternity with Jesus. That's what makes it paradise, the Savior of our soul. And so the, the cross, the cross reveals a lot about people. It reveals a lot about people. But the greatest thing the cross reveals, the greatest thing it reveals to us is the one who can take us home. It reveals to us our Savior, who we all need to trust in for our salvation. And that's why we take communion. That's why we take communion. Because as we do it, we are proclaiming Jesus' death as we wait for him to come back and take us to paradise. We're waiting for his return. And so we are going to take a communion together, but we're going to first stop and do what the Bible tells us to do, which is to stop and reflect, to examine ourselves, it says, to look at the way that we've been living, maybe earlier this morning or, 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 or earlier this week. Just look at the way that we've been living and just to see, Lord, is there anything that I need to confess to you before taking communion? And then confessing those things to him. And uh, 
And maybe you're here today and uh, you haven't trusted in Jesus. You know that Jesus is not your Savior. Then I would, I would say to you that today is the day. Today is the day to trust in him, to see him dying on the cross to pay for your sins. Don't be like the people that we heard about earlier who, who, who ignore and, and push Jesus to the side, who miss Jesus, who don't see him. Put your faith in him. And if you do that, then when these trays come, they don't have to pass you by. You can partake. But you have to put your faith in, in Jesus. But if you know if you know that you have not trusted in Christ, then we want to say to you that we love you very much. But we would ask that you would just let the trays pass. And we'd love for you to come up and, and talk to us. We'd, we'd love to answer any questions that you have. But we'd, we're asking that you just let the trays pass. And so as the ushers hand out communion, let's take some time now to reflect. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.